great to be with you this morning. I'm so encouraged to, to preach to you this morning. And I want to preach to you about dealing with idols in our life. And uh, out of Romans chapter 8, which we started last week, I just felt to, um, to talk on idols this week. And we're going to continue looking at other things out of Romans in the next um, couple of weeks. But if I look back over this year, I want to say God has been speaking to us overwhelmingly about how we can be rooted in Christ in all areas of our lives. That's what Jesus has been speaking about. That means in our theology and how we understand God, it means in our lives and our worship in every area of our life, how can we be rooted in Him? And I said last week, one of the areas that God has been speaking to me personally, dealing with me personally in, is moving away from a man-centered theology towards a God-centered theology and embracing all that that means. And part of that was why we started looking at Romans chapter 8, where that amazing declaration happens for every single one who's a believer here this morning, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's no condemnation. And we had a look. We said, it doesn't mean there's no accusation. It doesn't mean there's no tribulation. Certainly, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a great liberty and freedom that we have in Jesus. And as a result of our justification, we are not condemned. And the privilege of our sanctification is that we get to walk by the Spirit. And we live our lives not by a set of rules, a set of do's and don'ts, but by the inner relationship that comes from the heart that is a divine love affair with Christ. And because we love him, we don't murder. And we, and we honor each other's wives because we love him, not because anyone tells us to do anything, but because we are free in Christ. This is the gospel. We're all in need, desperate need of a Savior. I love that. There was a guy, I've said this before, a guy called T-Bone Burnett, who had an album called Criminal Under My Own Hat. I love that title. Criminal under my own hat. We are all criminals. We are all dirty, rotten scoundrels, every single one of us. And then the God of history reaches into our lives and transforms our hearts, and we become completely different people. Anyone can say amen to that. I was reading an article by John Piper this week, and I want to encourage you to get onto the Desiring God webpage. There are many good Many good uh, things on the internet. That is certainly one of them. And he was talking about total depravity. We believe this, this church, we hold to this theology, that we are desperately wicked. There's nothing good in us. We are totally depraved. And on that basis, God can deal with us when we acknowledge that there's nothing good about our lives. Okay, now that's exactly opposite to the humanist kind of uh, indoctrination that we receive at school, which says that actually you are good, and there's good in every single one of us. Well, I want to talk about that this morning, but I want to read what uh, Piper says here. He says, does being totally depraved mean that we always sin no matter what? This is his answer, and I'm quoting. Yes. Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. And so you don't even need total depravity. You just need unbelief in order to say that everything a person does who is not a believer is sin. Maybe another word on that. Why is that the case? Well, if you have a son and you want him to do something and he does that thing, like unbelievers don't kill people, so they're obeying the, that command, don't kill. But why are they doing that? Are they doing it for the Father's honor? Is God being magnified in all that they do? Are they saying, I submit to God, I love Him, I love the image of God in, in all humanity, and for those reasons I don't kill, and thus God gets the glory? No, 
They're doing it for reasons that have nothing to do with God because not, they don't believe in Him. And therefore, God is being belittled and therefore they are sinning in, even in obeying Him. So that's the first thing. When you become a Christian, the depravity and the disinclination to do what is right and to delight in what is holy and pure and good and to be satisfied in God is not conquered perfectly. Which means that, at least for myself, and I think Paul would say this in Philippians 3.12, not that I am already perfect or have already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own because he has made me his own. I think that's Paul's way of saying Romans 7, which we talked about last week, remember? Romans 7, this wrestle inside of us. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I should do I don't do? That's what Paul says in Romans 7, then it gets on to Romans chapter 8, that glorious declaration, but there is now no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We looked at that last week. And uh, Papa says this, I know that Romans 7 type experiences abound in my life. I know that I should love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And the all there is 100%. Have I ever done a deed? Have I ever done one deed that I could honestly say was motivated by total love for God? Total love. That, I was, that is that I was not being drawn in the least by a sinful dimension of it. I doubt that I've ever preached a sermon like that. I'm sure I haven't. I am absolutely sure I haven't. And we fall, he concludes by saying this, my fallen human nature, remember we talked about that last week, the flesh in us, redeemed and adopted and loved and forgiven as I, ha as I am, my fallen flesh that remains and that must be put to death day after day includes me to like the approval of men. How many of you like the approval of men? I do. I like to know that I've done a good job. It's not bad to be told that sometimes, but sometimes we want the approval of men too much. It inclines me to wonder how I came across. How did I do? Did I do okay? It inclines me to be angry at the person who criticizes me. It inclines me in all these ways, and I'm killing them saying, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. But even that I have to do that, show that fight shows that I'm not there yet. And yes, I think we're always sinning, but we mustn't let it paralyze us because it is the cross that is glorified in saying, sinner though I am, in his sight, I am perfect. That is the gospel. Amen. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the cross. Thank him for the atonement that we've received by which we are fully set free from all our guilt and shame. One more quote, and then I'm going to get into what I want to say. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, wrote a sermon on Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, where he was talking about God as our provider, Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And he says this, talking about substitution, that, that we believe as Christians that Jesus took upon himself the fullness of our sin and was a substitution for us. The fullness of that was perfected on the cross. He says, we want the fact of substitution to strike us. And then the cross will grow sublimely great. In vision, we see its two arms are extended to the right and the left, 
and they touch the east and the west, and they overshadow all races of men. And its foot descends lower than the grave till it goes down to the gates of hell, while upward the cross mounts with a halo round it of unutterable glory. Till it rises above the stars and it sheds its light upon the thrones of the Most High God. Atonement is a divine business. Its sacrifice is infinite even as the God who conceived it. Glory be to His name forever. It's all that I can say. Uh, it was nothing less than a stretch of divine love for Jesus to give himself for our sins. It was graciousness for the infinite to conceive of such a thing, but for him to carry it out was glorious beyond all. The cross is the glorious news of the gospel. That's the gospel we preach. Jesus, the fullness of the cross, perfectly taking his sin upon us. As I've been thinking about these things, and just meditating on the fact, I'm convinced that as we preach Christ as the highest love of our hearts, everything else in our hearts that takes his place needs to be torn down. As we preach our love for Jesus as the consuming thing of our hearts, every other thing must be torn down. And when that begins to happen, the fullness of the kingdom really does begin to impact our lives in a profound way. And Jesus wants, I prayed it this morning, Jesus wants the full affection of your heart. The full affection. He doesn't want your affection to be distracted by anything good or bad. He wants the full affection of your heart. Every single one of us. He wants the full affection of my heart. And as we see the full affection of his heart, as we express the full affection of our love to him, we will see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But he wants the full affection of our hearts. Husbands, your wife wants the full affection of your heart. Jesus is a jealous lover in that sense. He wants the full affection of your heart. And we're going to look at this morning at idols. And with that in mind, I hope you're on Acts chapter 17. Can we read from verse 16? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I tried to encourage you last week to get one. I hope you got one. All right. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout people and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Just a little aside. The Stoics were philo Greek philosophers who believed that you, you needed to live a temperate life. And so you neither got too happy and you didn't get too sad. You kind of just existed. And in the, on that basis of existing in this kind of temperate state, you actually then didn't experience pain in your life. And so that was a prevalent philosophy in that day, the Stoics. And we get that Stoic, that you, when you say someone is Stoic, it's like they show the British thing of the stiff upper lip. And whatever happens, just keep calm and keep going. That is Stoicism. That is not the gospel. <laughs> when the gospel is written in your life, you can be a person that doesn't just endure hard things. You can be like those Paul and Silas who were in jail. And while they were behind the bars, they were singing in their hearts. That's a different thing. That's the gospel alive in you. And the Epicureans were also um, 
Greek philosophers had a similar kind of thing where they put all their hope in knowledge and abstinence. And so in order to have a, a fulfilled life, you didn't, you didn't give yourself sexually. You abstained and you, you ate meagerly. So it was kind of an asceticism. That was Epicurean philosophy in order to achieve the same thing of this kind of life we could live without too much pain. That ain't the gospel either. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. When you make love to your wife, do it passionately. It's a gift to you. Oh, all the guys are smiling, girls. Come on. These are gifts to us to enjoy the fullness of these things. God doesn't call you to abstain from that to be spiritually acceptable. No. All things are good. And when you do all things in His name, you enjoy them. Yeah, it is good. That's the gospel. Okay. And so, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And when they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing this new, something new. I can't read the whole thing, but basically, let's just read the little next couple of verses. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of the worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. <laughs> it sounds like new age to me, doesn't it? And therefore what you worship as unknown, I proclaim this to you, that God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of all mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way towards him and feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offering, his offspring. And then he goes on to um, speak of, of uh, idols made of silver, etc., etc. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 19, when you read further, they come across this guy called Demetrius, who makes his money from idols. And a riot erupts because Paul is preaching Christ, and they, they're scared they're not going to make any money out of their, uh, their idols, and they try and deal with Paul. I mean, where we go, we should, we should start seeing some of that stuff. As we preach the gospel, that we see some reaction from the culture. Because we stand against the culture, we preach the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Nietzsche was a philosopher. He said this, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. That's quite a thing to say. There are more idols in the world than there are realities. I want to just read a, a little thing from a book by Tim Keller, who I want to thoroughly recommend dealing with the subject of idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. And he talks about the last two or three years. And he says this, 
after the global economic crisis began in the mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager invested the, the, the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families who had lost $1.4 billion of his client's money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had, brought, uh, his, which, is, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from a 29th floor of his office building. A friend said, this Bear Stearns thing, it really broke his spirit. It was grimly reminiscent of the suicides in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. Well, all of us are familiar with what's happening in the economy right now. And what I want to say, what that does show, those little quotes do show, many thought that prosperity would fulfill a yearning for happiness and success, but it's proved to be an absolute illusion. What results is despair when people cannot find that thing that they've put all their hope and their trust in. It's different from sorrow. Despair is the end of the line. Despair is the ultimate, when the ultimate source of your meaning and your hope is broken, your spirit is broken, and you have nothing else to turn to. And that happens when we take something that is incomplete, that is never meant for us to build our full happiness around that thing, and the Bible calls that idolatry. When you take something and build your happiness around that which is not God in your life, that's called idolatry. The first thing I want to say, very simple points as a kind of introduction to you this morning. Our culture is full of idols. Our culture is full of idols. Now, Paul, we read in Acts 17, he said, while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. And the, and the New Testament has many vivid descriptions of ancient cities that worshipped their favorite deities. And Paul saw that in Athens, like we've just read. The Parthenon in Athens, was it overshadowed everything. It was absolutely massive. It overshadowed everything, and in its public places in the Parthenon, the gods of the day were displayed. And here are some of those gods for you. There was Epaphrodite. Epaphrodite was the goddess of beauty. And they had a temple of Epaphroditus, and there would be ritual prostitution and a whole lot of stuff that went on in that temple. The goddess of beauty. There was Ares, the goddess, the god of war. There was Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. There was Hephaestus. I can never pronounce these words, but he was the god of craftsmanship. All right? We might think our contemporary culture is very different, that we don't have those idols like ancient cultures did. But I want to say to you, it's not so. It absolutely is not so. Our culture, too, is contaminated and dominated by our own sets of idols. And each one of these 
idols has its own shrine. And some of these are towering office blocks. Some of these are gymnasiums and spas. Some of these are sports stadiums. Some of these are billboards displaying the latest and the, the, the most perfect body and the most perfect face. And all of those are temptations to us to promise us the good life and security. These are the modern gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement. And they surround us all the time. So ladies, you might not kneel before Epaphrodite today. I want to ask you this question. How many women are are driven to depression and eating disorders because of the image of how their body looks? I want to ask you that honestly. Men, you might not bow to Epaphrodite or Artemis, but how many men lose their families? How many men lose their children on the altar of success in business? How many? Too many to count. Our culture is full of idolatry. Second, very simple point, and Tim Keller makes this, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. I've said this before, but in the 80s, the cry of the stock market was, greed is good. And we're paying for that right now. Greed is good. We've seen the stock bubble kind of last for the last 20 years. But the Bible says something very interesting. In Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, greed is idolatry. The world is saying greed is good. The Bible says greed is idolatry. Money can become a god. And when something becomes a god in your life, it demands your worship and your obedience. And money can even become an addiction to some in a spiritual way. More and more financial risks, risks are taken for less and less reward. And in, in, in the end, a breakdown occurs like we've just seen in our community right now. And we find ourselves thinking, how did we end up in this place? How could we have been so stupid? Why did we lose sight of what was right? Well, it's an addiction. It's a spiritual addiction as people give their hearts to money. Our hearts are an idol factory. You know, and we, perhaps we tend to think of that as... as uh, not of real statues. Maybe we think we do, when we talk about idols, we think of the next X-Factor person or the next pop idol anointed by Simon Cowell. That's what we think of in terms of idolatry. But the point is this, very simple point. The point is this, that internal idol worship of our hearts is universal. It is everywhere. It's in every one of us, and we need to have a look and identify. Ezekiel 14.3 says about the elders of Israel... The elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Or maybe, maybe the elders of Israel would have said, well, what idols? I don't see any idols. And perhaps that's the same. Our reaction might be similar today. What idols? We don't see any idols. But I want to say, God, what he's saying, I feel very strongly that the human heart takes good things. We have a tendency to take good things, like a successful career. I want to say to you, a successful career is a good thing. Like love. Loving someone and being in love is a good thing. It ain't bad, it is good. Material possessions are good. Okay? The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't have things. It says what you do with those things is very important. If you've got lots, share with those that don't have so much. 
good things like our family and children. And uh, the inclination of our heart is to turn those things into ultimate things. Ultimate things that rule completely in our lives. They become the center of our lives. And we think that we can gain significance, security, and safety, and fulfillment if we have those things. And so what is good becomes ultimate. That is idolatry. Very simple point, number three. Anything can be an idol. And I think that's why the Bible is quite sophisticated in how it talks about idolatry. We are living in a, in a community in a time where we can see, obviously, that money can become much more than just money. It becomes a culture-changing, it becomes a culture-shaping God. And it becomes an idol that breaks the hearts of those that worship it. If you are putting your trust for your future in finances, you are going to be disappointed. It is not a security. God is our security. God is our provider. Let's not lose focus. I don't want anyone into this, this church not to have money, not to have a job. But I'm, I'm, I'm learning more and more. My hope is in that scripture that says, I've never seen the children of a righteous man begging for streets, begging for bread on the streets. That was where the source of our hope should be, that God is our provider. He gives good things to his children. We don't have to be anxious and fret and worry. In the midst of an economic crisis, God has sustained us. Every single one of us can say that. And we can so easily see the problems of greed in everybody else, can't we? Ah, it's those bankers with their bonuses. How shocking is it? Hundreds of millions. And the government's just bailed them out, and now they're getting huge bonuses. Or those MPs with their expenses. Ah, they're the ones that should be dealt with. Extravagance. Two homes. And we rise up with this kind of self-righteousness. I think those things distract us from this very simple little thing that anything can be an idol and everything can be an idol in our hearts. It's interesting, when you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, what is uh, the Ten Commandments start with this? I am the Lord your God, and you shall have... No other gods before me. That leads to a very simple question. When God says you should have no other gods before me, what is he talking about? And the Bible is very simple. It answers itself in the very next verse. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. In heaven, or above the earth, or beneath the waters below, you shall not bow down and worship them. Simple. So we've talked a little bit this morning about idols of money and sex and power. But there's a point here is that anything can become an idol and serve as an alternative to God in our lives. And how often haven't we heard of sportsmen in pursuit of a career in sports at the highest level who take steroids and drugs, and then as a result of being found out, they lose everything. How many times haven't you heard that? Their career was a good thing. It's a good thing to achieve sport at the highest level, but when when it's turned into a supreme thing, the ultimate thing, then every other value is lost in the pursuit of that thing and we overlook a whole lot of other things and it leads to great heartache when other values are pushed aside. It's not wrong to want to be a great sportsman, but I think we make the mistake that we think idols are bad things. What I'm trying to say to you this morning is that mostly idols are good things. Mostly they are good things. They are normally 
they are great gifts from God, but we think that they will satisfy the deepest needs of our hearts, the deepest longings of our hearts, and in that place they become idols, and this can be true of the very best things of life. So my friends, for, as I've been thinking this week and praying and just trying, trying to wrestle some of these things through my, my own heart, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination more than God does. These are things that become so central to us that if we lose them, we feel like we cannot live life any longer like some of those stories that we read. Idols have such control of our hearts that most of our passion, our energy, our emotional and financial resources are spent on pursuing them. So can I mention some things that I think are idols in our lives? And if the kingdom is going to fully come, we have to deal with these things in a godly way. Family and children. Oh, don't talk about my family. Don't talk about children. Not an idol to me. I think they can be an idol. Absolutely. When they have supreme place in your life and everything else must be organized around your family and your children, it's an idol. Secondly, career and money. If I can just get that promotion, I'll be happy. Achievement. Critical acclaim. Now, if people just recognize me, I'll be happy. Perhaps a romantic relationship. You're putting all your trust. If only one day I'm married, God, I will be happy. Paul says this. Paul says if you get married, you're inviting a lot of trouble into your life. He does. It's wonderful to be married. I'm so glad that I'm married. I'm absolutely glad. I am. But it's true. Paul also said if you want to be distracted, if you don't want to be distracted, live a single life and get on and serve the king. That's what he said. Both of those are true. Peer approval, wanting approval from our peers. Uh, some competence. And we put our, if we're highly skilled in an area, that can become an idol. Your looks. Your brains. You pride yourself in your intelligence. It's an idol. And name many others. Political causes, social causes, the fact that you feel like you're a moral person. I live a good life. It's interesting in that movie, Seven Pounds, that we watched the other night. How many times didn't he say in that movie, are you a good person? Because if you're a good person, you deserve this gift that I'm going to give you. So opposite to what Christ does for us, isn't it? He says, well, you, there's nothing good about you, but I give myself completely because I love you. It's a completely different motivation. One for me, success in Christian ministry. <laughs> that can be an idle conduct. Oh, if we're just successful if we're just helping people with their problems, and we, we become so concerned with fixing other people's problems that our life, the meaning of our life is that we help fix other people's problems. What is that? And the meaning of our life should be that Christ is at the center. If I have that relationship, my life will have meaning. If I have that, I'll have security. If I know this, I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant. Then I will I will feel secure. Perhaps the best word to use in relation to that is we worship that thing. We worship it. We give our hearts to it. Well, you know, the pagan cultures, they had a God for everything. Sex gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, national gods. They had a God for everything. The simple reason for that is that is quite easy to understand. It's not hard. Anything that rules in our hearts 
and we serve as a deity in our hearts becomes a God. That's it. Very simple. So can I say once again, physical beauty is a good thing. I love the fact that I'm married to a beautiful woman. But if that becomes the most important thing in your life or a culture's life, then you no longer have beauty. You have a deity. You have Epaphrodite. That's what you have. When you worship that thing. And how many ladies, I'm not picking on you this morning. I want to set you free. Throw some of those magazines away. Throw them away, man. Why do you want to just look at that stuff all the time? If only I looked like that. Most of those women are spray, the pictures are spray painted anyway and fixed. It's true. Just give, just throw it away. Men, health and fitness magazine, throw it away, man. If your abs don't look like those things, don't worry about it, all right? Don't worry. God is pleased with you. He loves you. If we are so constantly aware of our appearance and we are worrying about it constantly and fretting about it and spending disproportionate amounts of money and time on it, then it is Epaphrodite to us. Let's just admit it. We're serving an idol. So the Bible is quite sophisticated. It talks about personal idols like romantic love and family, like money, power, achievement. Talks about cultural idols like military power or tradition or technological skill or economic prosperity. These can be idols. And the idols in a traditional society include things like family, like hard work, like a sense of duty. I want to say, living in a modern Western culture, things like individual freedom, personal peace, affluence, all those things take on disproportionate size disproportionate power in society and they tempt us and they say, if you serve me, you will have security, you will feel good about yourself and you will have happiness if you base your life around me. And what God has been saying to us overwhelmingly this year as a church, I want you to base yourself around this love affair with Jesus. That is what's going to bring security into your life. Not any of these things, but your love affair with Jesus. Intellectual idols. I mentioned this before, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a French philosopher in the late 19th century, and he proposed this thing that actually men are noble savages. We are noble. We are really good. I'm doing my Michael McIntyre impersonation. We are really good. I can't do that thing that he does. But why we experience evil in the world is simply this. It's because we have a poor education or we've been socialized poorly. And what happens while straight after the world embraced that, that particular philosophy, we had two world wars that absolutely destroyed once and for all the illusion that man is basically good. Man is not basically good. He's totally depraved and in desperate need of a savior. I'm finishing now, and I'd like us to worship and break bread together. The Bible uses three words about idols. It says people love idols, they trust idols, and they obey idols. And there's three metaphors that the Bible uses. very interesting. Sometimes the Bible uses the metaphor of marriage to describe our relationship with idols. And it's, the Bible's quite clear. It says, Jesus should be our heavenly bridegroom. He should, that's why I said at the beginning, he demands the full affections of our hearts. And when we delight in other things above 
that relationship, we commit spiritual adultery. If you read the Old Testament, how many times doesn't, don't the prophets talk about and say, you have lusted after other things. You have run off with other, other lovers. And God is calling you back to a relationship with Him. It's the same thing in the new. Jesus is encouraging us to be in love with Him. Not everything else. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. I had uh, t- talking with a friend the other day. Someone told him, yeah, it's great you're involved with the church, but make sure you leave some time with, for your family. Make sure you leave some time for your family. Just warning you, they're going to take all your time. And I want to say in that man's heart, it's the idol of his heart is family. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. And all these things will be added in the right order, fulfilling all of them. All righteousness will be fulfilled. I trust you don't get any frustration. I'm not frustrated. I'm just saying that's what God has for us. A divine relationship, wonderful romance with Him, and all these things will be added to us. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus is our true spouse. Many things can become false lovers. Promise that they will make us feel good. An interesting uh, exercise. What do you most daydream about? (laughs) When you're just daydreaming, what do you daydream about? Because that can be very revealing in terms of our heart. What do you really daydream about? What what captures your imagination? You know, I'm going to be flying to Kenya tonight. I wonder, I'm just thinking, what will I think about on the plane? Daydream about. Because that will reveal something of the heart. What's really there? Who's really sitting on the altar. The Bible also uses a, a, a religious metaphor. It says this, we can only have one Savior. Jesus is our Savior. But we can look at for personal achievement, financial prosperity to give us peace and security. You see, when you, worship, when you give yourself an idol, it makes you feel that you are in control. <laughs> that you are in control of your life. It, makes you, it gives you that illusion that actually you can do something. And Christ is saying, no, no. I want you to give yourself fully to me, and then I will take care of you. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying over and over and over again. That's what he's been saying to us this year. And the Bible also thirdly uses a political metaphor. It says we should only serve one master, Jesus. Guys, I want to just say to you, don't spend your whole life serving Pharaoh in the economic courts of the world. Because Pharaoh will never satisfy you. He will promise satisfaction for you, but you will never be able to do enough to satisfy Pharaoh. How many of you are working 15 hours a day and Pharaoh is still not happy? He will never be happy. Serve Jesus with all your heart and he will take care of you. Am I saying we mustn't work hard? I'm saying we must work hard. But don't put your trust in Pharaoh. He's deceptive. God wants you out of Egypt into the promised land. Don't dwell with one foot in Egypt. Let's fully move into the promised land that God has for us. That's, we began by looking at people that had reached a place of despair because they trust, they put all their trust in idols that couldn't fulfill and ultimately failed them. And some of them took their lives as a result. The way forward, my friends, the way forward, I want to say out of a place of sorrow and despair, it's not only to discern the idols of our own hearts and the idols of our culture, but after we've done that, to free ourselves from their influence, they are counterfeit things. They are not the real thing. The only thing we can do is to turn ourselves wholeheartedly back to the living Christ. That's what he's calling us to do. The one who's revealed himself 
to us through Jesus and the cross. And we've been talking this year about an unknown path that we've been invited to walk on. Every single one of us has been invited by the Holy Spirit to journey on this unknown path with Him. And my friends, it includes these things that I'm talking about this morning. It includes we are invited into this love affair of the heart with the living Christ, the one who's made us, and only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus can forgive you. Only Jesus can give you a future. Only Jesus can give you a hope and a security that is sure. Only Jesus. Nothing else. That is the gospel. Let's worship now. And I, I want to encourage you. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody in this place. I want to see everybody liberated and freed into the fullness of what God has for us. Amen? Every single one of us. But let's deal with some idols this morning. If there are things that you know God has spoken to you, we're going to worship. We're going to break bread. You deal with that thing. You say, Lord, this morning, I want to deal a death blow to that thing. Not serving Pharaoh anymore. I'm serving you wholeheartedly. My security is in you and the future that you have for me, not in what I can see with my eyes. My friends, these are not easy things. These are real, real things. But that's the encouragement that God has for us, every one of us this morning. Let's put all of our trust in Him, in what He is, what He can do, not in anything else. Amen? God bless you. I want to lead us, Becky. Let's stand. Let's stand and worship.